guys. Welcome back to A Different Life Story, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is a very special day because I have got a beautiful guest, Maureen Kavanagh, who is the author of a book, uh, If You Love Me, A Mother's Journey Through Her Daughter's Opioid Addiction. I bought this book in 2020 and read it. And the moment I got into the book and, and, and just saw the rawness, the, the honesty, the humility with which it was written, I knew I had to meet this woman. And having a, a show is actually a beautiful excuse to, for you to come out and actually get in touch with the author and say, hey, come on, I, I need to talk. <laughs> and Maureen was very kindly agreeing. And finally, uh, all our things had aligned. And today we are doing the interview. Why do I like this book so much? There is one beautiful story in there um, that for me as a dad brought it all home. Um, on the way home, I stop in the local bookstore where I used to bring Katie and Liam in better times as a treat after they got a good grade. I go to the section in the small store that holds the classics and grab a new copy of the Scarlet Letter. Out of the corner of my eye, I spot a woman I worked with when I was teaching in the town's middle school. For a moment, I think of slipping away before she notices me, but before I'm able to execute the turn, she spots me and I catch the recognition in her face. Does she see the woman she shared lunch and stories with for years, or the mother of the girl who was arrested for selling herself for heroin? Oh, I wanted to call to see if you're okay, she says awkwardly. I jump a little bit. Your answer. Why didn't you? I ask. She pauses, stunned. There is no good answer to my question. I break the silence. Don't worry, you're in good company. No one else said anything either. I relate flatly, not caring about offending anyone. Let the story get out. I'll stop there. Maureen Kavanagh, thank you so much for coming on my show. It's an absolute honor to be with you oh, today. Very happy to be here, thank you. When I read that little little section, I felt the cringe. I felt the heartache. I felt a visceral reaction within me as a dad about the shame, the, the you don't want to be in that situation because you would have easily just turned around and hidden somewhere. You would have done anything to not be in that scenario. But then when you were forced to confront with it, you said, fuck it, this is. <laughs> That's kind of exactly what I said. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and in the preamble to this interview, you called yourself a bitch for <laughs> at that moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and fair call, fair call. I mean, the amount of emotion, emotions that, that raise through a loved one when they are in situations where, have to, where they have to deal with, with, the fact that someone they love has become an overt addict uh, is is brutal. It's a roller coaster of emotions. And whilst we often look at addiction as as, as you know as 
a problem of a person. That's so not true. It is a problem of a family. It affects a family so brutally. It affects everyone who this person touches. And if you look through, if how many people do on average, how many other lives do we touch? I think I read somewhere about 28, 30. So there you go. The story of your daughter uh, has very much impacted on you. And nowadays, you you are you have become an advocate. You've become a woman who is so outspoken, who has written a book, who is who is out there, and that is such a beautiful beautiful story nowadays but it certainly wasn't wasn't the case case you know a few years back and maybe we should stop or we should start there I mean you how was how was it uh, how was your family life um, prior to you finding out that things are wrong really normal just kind of normal I, there was nothing extraordinary there was no big trauma there was no you know mental health issues there was just normal you know ups and downs just like every other family um i saw this uh photo once i think it was on facebook it was this meme that said um here is a picture of all the casseroles i received when I, everyone found out that my child had a substance use disorder and um it, with the table was completely empty, nice and shiny, no casseroles. And it was just, I mean, and that's kind of, that's kind of it. And in that moment, in that bookstore, I was so mad at myself because I realized I had stayed quiet for my daughter's sake, because I, we, I knew this was going on with her. It was at the very beginning and um, she was fighting it. You know, she had gone into treatment once or twice and I was starting to feel like there's a possibility of her going back into treatment that we might get through this without a whole town knowing, which we lived in a small town. Mm -hmm. um, and I taught there and she volunteered in the school. She worked in the local grocery store and I was quiet so that hopefully that, you know, wouldn't wouldn't follow her for the rest of her life. But I was also quiet because I didn't want to deal with, you know, people's reactions and um and the judgment and the being quiet certainly wasn't and then i you know after she was arrested uh and it was in the local local newspaper um honor student arrested for prostitution um and then everyone knew right and she went twirling down the drain because then felt like there was really no point in getting well anymore because she could never ever outlive that you know um get past this everyone knowing and um you know so now she's got this t terrible heroin problem and also now her her reputation is destroyed in her mind um she wrote wrote to the newspaper the next day uh, apologizing to her friends and family which she didn't need to do and um also um saying that you know people become, who become addicted sometimes do terrible things because they feel like they have no choice but that doesn't make them a bad person and they printed that too so I know. Kudos, yeah. kudos to them for printing it. And oh. even more important to your daughter. She's an amazing, and even in the middle of that is an amazing person. But when I saw that person in the bookstore, I thought to myself, for you, I kept quiet. For somebody who didn't <laughs> even think to <laughs> pick up <laughs> the phone, <laughs> you know? So I, I, I really, at that point had started, when, when they printed that article, 
we all came out. So unfortunately, my daughter was forced out into the public with this, but I also decided that I'm not going to remain quiet any any longer, that I was seeing things that were really wrong. And I started to go to every uh, addiction event out there, and I would wear my Marblehead T-shirt because that was the name of the town. So I figured if they're going to out her, I'm going to out them. So I, and I would do everything I could to get in the picture <laughs> to let everybody know that that so town had a problem. Excellent. So and it, it's just it had to it had to be something something good had to have come out of this because for a very long time we didn't know whether she was going to live or not you yeah. know and I I knew that it whatever happened all of this pain and suffering was not going to be for nothing. It's so beautiful, and that's exactly why I'm sitting here at six forty in the morning speaking to such beautiful persons, people like you, um, because I want to demystify addiction and I want to talk honestly about it. And I want to make my pain make sense to me. I've gone through too much shit in my life to now be quiet. And once you actually start speaking out, it becomes nearly like an addiction in its own right, because you actually see that you that you rattle so many cages and mm-hmm. by talking openly about it. Uh, I remember I had I had written my book, My Steps to Sobriety in uh, what uh, I wrote it now a year and a bit ago. And after the Christmas holidays, I came back to work, got changed in a changing room and, and a colleague walked in and he got changed. And so whilst we were changing, he sort of said, oh yeah, what I've been up to. I said, I wrote a book. Um, he said, oh, oh, what about? I am a story with addiction. He looked at me, stopped for a moment and said, what did you do that for? In a pretty much that tone. Mm-hmm. And I thought, whoa, that's a funny reaction. I said, you know, I, I felt I had to. And I did that and went to my theater. This time I was clothed. I was, I was dressed by then. I went to my theater and started working. A few hours later, I got a text, um, Stefan, can we talk? And it was from this particular colleague who was at that moment actually quite in the throes of, of being in trouble mm-hmm. with, with addiction. So I think there are so many lessons from that. And I'll take, I'll jump already a little bit ahead, but it's so clear one in three people are chemically addicted. So I don't know how many people are in your little in in Marblehead. How what's the population of Marblehead? Twenty two thousand. I'm no I no longer live there, and they okay. didn't run me out on a rail. But I, I decided <laughs> to leave after a while. Oh, fair call, fair call. So that would be about six thousand people. Okay, every third oh. one you see in the grocery store. It's uh, far I, higher than that. Far oh, higher than in that. In Marblehead, I believe, okay. I believe oh, so. Yeah. I see. There you go. There they, you go. They call it a little a little uh, a sailing town with a drinking problem. No, a drinking town with the sailing problem. I'm oh, sorry. right. Yeah. This way around. Because it's, yeah, yeah. Because it's, so, yeah, so it's far, far higher than that. There you go. Uh, and I think that is something that we so need to highlight. Okay. And and the problem is, at the moment, we are preaching to the converted. Those people who are listening here uh, into this podcast, they already have got an inkling that things are not right. But I think it's really, really good that we are spelling out the numbers. But let's you go know, a little... It's funny. I don't mean to cut you off. Not um, at all. I, it's, I wrote that book because I wanted families that were going through this to really um, 
to understand what, you know, that they weren't alone and that there was, you know, kind of watch my story and it, mm. as it, as it comes to the end, kind of what I've learned. But I also wrote the book so that people that didn't understand, like that woman in the, um, in the store mm. that I want to people, I want people to understand what families go through because all too often people point that finger and where were you? Where was the family when all this was going on? Well, I show you pretty clearly where the family was. I mean, I, we all thought that, the world of my daughter. I don't think that, you know, she was absolutely adored and for good reason. She's an, an incredible, smart, creative, funny, hardworking person that got taken over by the drugs that she was using that she, and she never intended for that to happen. And that's where the family was. We were at home ripping our hair out of our head when we didn't know where she was. So it bothered me that, that idea of, well, what did you do wrong? Yeah. And sometimes very, very often, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with that. Right. So, um, I, I mean, but I do remember when that box of books come, it came because my, my book was published by um, Henry Holt Macmillan and pretty big publisher. They do everything in a very specific way. So when the, it was like a, the day before the book was released to stores, I get this big box of books and I opened it up and I saw that face that's on the cover looking back at me. And I thought to myself, Oh my God, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, that is, um, uh, oh, that's, that's yeah, so beautiful. <laughs> it's very, very uh, much exposed, you know, exposed everything in oh, my life right. from probably the time I was before I was yeah. born, I yeah. think I talk yeah. about. So it's, um, it's, you know, it's a weird feeling, but I know that I did yeah. the right thing because I hear from people constantly, families that go through this and thought that, you know, they read the book and they're like, I did that. I did that. So, oh, how beautiful is that? Let's go back. Uh, let's go back. The uh, you, sorry. One thing I need to say is we want to protect your daughter, and we want to not basically use names here. So therefore, I call her your daughter, and mm -hmm. uh, if you just keep it like that. And those of you who want to to read the book, and I recommend all of you to read the book. Um, the, her name is in there, absolutely. But here, uh, let's try to protect her to a degree. Um, your daughter, she was a go-getter, uh, would classify her. She was, she, she sounds like me, uh, in the sense of top grades at school, uh, really, really hard worker, the way you describe her, a lot of, lot of positive and nice things there. Um, how did she, at which age did she end up? getting exposed to it and how did she get exposed to opiates and it was was it oxycodone that she injected or heroin what was no, actually the first heroin okay yeah so how did that start with hindsight it's it's really you know kind of um interesting it was i mean it's everywhere it and especially when she was in high school and college it was, it's everywhere so it wasn't too hard to find and um but really the problem is something that she had no control over and i have no control over and we know that addiction is 50 percent genetic um at least 50 percent genetic and she kind of got it from every possible you know uh point so it's um heavily in her father's uh family it's everyone in my entire family with the exception of me only god knows why i mean i always thought before i went through this with her i thought i was smarter i thought i was 
uh, stronger. I thought a lot of things that I got a very hard lesson that none of that is is true. I was just luckier. So she got the uh, she got the full barrel. You know the yeah. Russian roulette um, uh, game of addiction. She got it. And um, so when she tried, she you know maybe smoked some pot and and drank a little bit in in high school, which I didn't really I wasn't even aware of. Um, she. Um, she you know, it, it kind of soothed all those things that a teenager goes through. And she wasn't going anything through anything extraordinary, but everybody handles things differently, you know? So what might look like nothing to me was something to her. And, um, but let's face it, most kids experiment a little bit, even if it's, you know, just alcohol. And I don't say just alcohol, because that can kill you just as easily. But um, it, you know, it's more accepted, right? So even if they don't go to the illegal, illegal things, they can they experiment a bit. Brain's not developed until they're 24, and they start. You know, it's it, it it's much easier to get addicted at at this stage, mm -hmm. I think. Um, and uh, it just becomes, you know, for somebody that has that uh, predis predisposed um, genetic kind of. Um, genetic predisposition they she wound up liking it now you know I liked it too when I was her age but I I was able to stop so she because of whatever genetic makeup was not able to mm. stop what her answer was always like well if that felt good what would a little more feel like so she was I mean but mm. she through high school there was no problems her first year of college she went away and she was such a like a homebody and so um, attached to me and attached to her brother that when she went away to school, she had a terrible time the first semester. She didn't want to stay. She didn't want to live there. She made it. And we said, well, let's just give it the first year, right? And by Christmas, she was um, not really, um, she was doing a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that was good because we weren't hearing from her as much. She wasn't, she wasn't coming home as much. But what was happening is she was start, starting to drink and then she was starting to try other things. And she came home after the first year and uh, said, mom, she said, I'm, um, I had to talk to you. I'm drinking way too much. And I tried heroin and uh, I'm scared. So, I mean, um, I almost fell over because she truly was the least likely person to do this in my eyes anyhow. Mm. And, um, so I took her to the emergency room and I had her checked out and um, they recommended an outpatient program. She didn't need detox. And um, she went to the outpatient program and she did the same thing she does everywhere. She did great. And I thought, because I'm so naive, that she's going to walk in one side of the, uh, the outpatient program. She's going to stay there for a little bit. And she's going to come out like on, a, like on a conveyor belt, like on a factory. And she's going to pop out the other side all fixed because it's her. You know what I mean? And I'm looking at her. When I look at her, I'm not looking at somebody who could potentially become addicted to heroin and, and, and arrested and all these other horrible things. But I, I'm looking at, you know, the eight-year-old that played softball. That's in my mind. That's that's what it looks what she looked like, who she was. And I figured too that since she had come to me the first time, mm. that she would always come to me. Mm. And I underestimated the power of the disease. Mm. So. It beautifully said, beautifully said. Um, out of interest, how much does heroin cost on the street? 
Oh, 20 bucks. I mean, you know, it's that's cheaper a, than That's than one pot. shot? No, that's a, a baggie. You know, I mean, you can get 20, 40. It's just, it's cheap. It's cheaper than pot. And it was, it was even cheaper then, I think. So Shit. it was, yeah. Okay. Wow. Um, okay. It's disturbing. And, really disturbing. And it is, uh, but that's not just necessarily a phenomenon for uh, the United States, although you guys have really coined the, 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 the or have become the master in the opiate addiction, I guess, mm. at least from what one hears internationally. Um, that might be that other countries are a little bit less uh, outgoing and uh, admitting to it. I can't imagine that, that uh, parts of Asia will not have a very similar high incidence. Uh, so it is these kind of things are out there, but it's a unique unique set of circumstances in the United States that we want to explore in a short while. But in the UK, for example, they have been doing yearly assessments of people. And, and one of these assessments in the sense of, of, of surveys where they ask young people between 18 and 24, um, tell us a little bit about your lifestyle, et cetera. And I mean, if you look through the last 20 years, the amount of young people who in the last year have used hard drugs, and that means the heroin, methadone, the cocaine, those kind of drugs, um, is 10% pretty much stable throughout the last few years. These are the people that admit it. And mm -hmm. so there will be more out there. So that is one in 10 young people has done hard drugs. And you think, what the beep? Um, and it is, and these are only the, fi the figures that are on the surface. And as a, as a cynical doctor and as an addict myself, I would say, make the times two or times three, then that's probably mm -hmm. a bit more realistic. So it's not just the United States that has that kind of issue. So here was your daughter basically letting, being let loose into her life out there, struggling, suddenly everything that was so beautiful, firm and straight and clear in her mind was becoming a bit wobbly. She was struggling to find herself in her first year uh, in university and then the wheels came off. Mm -hmm. She asked you for help, which is actually, I'm not sure how common that is, but um, I, I think it's fair. Yeah. no, exactly. So that speaks volumes about the relationship that you and your daughter had, that she mm -hmm. was, that she felt that she could come to you. So that's so beautiful. I mean, that's, that's so much more than, than, than many parents can say. And that again speaks to what you said earlier about that perception where were the parents what did you do and so interesting isn't yeah. it yeah so so she was in how did you find out actually let's talk about her changes i mean she she spoke to you um and admitted to it with then going back in your mind were there signs and symptoms so I, I, I do a lot of public speaking now and a lot of trainings. And whenever I go into a school and I do a presentation, I, t I have this great graphic. And it's all this, the, the typical early warning signs of um, suicidal ideation in a yeah. young person, yeah. typical warning signs of early drug use, 
and what typical adolescence looks like. And it pretty much all looks the same. So, I mean, when you, it does, right? And I mean, when I was looking at her, she was cranky, but she's, I, I had four kids and they were all cranky at 17, 16, 17 years old, right? They all stayed up too late and slept too, too long. I mean, yeah. it was, but she was still doing everything else she had to do. So yeah. I wasn't concerned about it. And it certainly wasn't, you know, to the level of severity that I look back and say, how could I not have seen that yeah. at all? It just wasn't there. And that's what's catching people, I think, unaware is that they think they should be. Plus, I was looking at this person that I knew, right? Which, so that was not necessarily even on the radar. Had I, had, would I have seen it if, it if it was? I don't think so, honestly. I wish I could say that I would have, uh, I wish I could have, you know, I remember that time and I should yeah. have, no, yeah. I wasn't. I mean, you know, and um, we were very close. So I assumed that I would know if anything yeah. was going on. I always worried more about her maybe drinking, you know, right. that was not even like a possibility in oh. my head. Yeah. How did she inject? As in, mm -hmm. where did she inject? Because you get typically the, the track marks is if, if someone is injecting, you get uh, little spots of blood on the clothing. Um, oh. You get these little things there that become a little bit more of an, hmm, where's that blood coming from kind of a thing. So it, looking back now, and I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have, like that's the one thing I would have, um, notice that I didn't notice the little pieces of of cotton the um the the bottle caps and um where she was with the where she was you know using the water and, and the and the spoons and the spoons we had no spoons left in the house but I thought that I in my head because I'm not looking at what I'm, yeah. I'm not seeing what I'm looking at I'm thinking when your kids have a yogurt or they have something and they throw the yogurt container out and throw the spoon out too now or the knife the knife in the cake box i mean exactly. everything goes in the, yeah so if they do throw something out which we know they don't do that that often either but when they do they tend to throw the silverware out or something else so that's what i'm thinking what are you guys doing i have mm. no more spoons mm. so um i'm not i would look back and i would there was some things that pieces of tinfoil that I would have noticed and and the Q-tips without the cotton on it and things like that, that I would have known was drug paraphernalia. I wouldn't have known then, but I know now. Mm. Um, yeah, but she was injecting initially into, you know, into her arm, but then eventually into other places too. Mm. And I think that's the that's one of the things uh, that you really so people try to hide them. So if your teenager always wore loose clothes and 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 was happy to to show her arms, and suddenly she wears long sleeves uh, and only ever long sleeves, and and has has uh, jackets on in in the middle of summer, uh, that some some sometimes these are the, the kind of little things that with hindsight um, are there. We have got similar things when we look at doctors who are abusing medications at work. Um, there is, unfortunately, certainly in the in the nineties and around about yeah nineties or twenty five years or so ago, there were two studies looking at the chance of of an anesthetic doctor uh, in training 
becoming an addict and, and, and injecting opiates. And the figures were 1.3 and 1.7, respectively, in Aussie and United States. So that was a study where we learned a lot about the risks that we are involved. Because face it, as an anesthetist, when I, I, in my daily work, if there's a problem, I probably deal with it with a syringe. One way or the other, whilst the patient is asleep, I give this, I give that. Whatever the problem is, I have a solution. And because I'm, I'm highly trained and not too too stupid, I, I typically get my patients better. No, that's nice. But here you are. Every problem has a solution in the form of a plunger. So therefore, we realize that actually, hang on, um, the logical step then in the reptilian brain is, oh, okay, I've got a problem in my own life. So what can I inject? And here you are. So, but out of that study and out of that awareness came then a look at, well, how, what, what happened to those people who were injecting? What were the trademarks, what were the hallmarks? How could we, how, with hindsight, what could we see? And, and one of these things were exactly those kind of things we've touched upon. So it's, yeah. it's so important. I actually, as an aside, I would love to have these free slides or these free pictures. Please, 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 uh, please. I would yeah. love to, I mean, to it's, see that. It's, it's kind of shocking, you know, because mm. everybody thinks they'd know. Oh, yeah, but, exactly. You know, but yeah, you'd know until you had, you know, three other kids mm. that acted mm. exactly like this. But now you have this one acting the same way and you're supposed to know that it's different. It's just mm. not. It's not different until it's really mm. severe. Mm. And then you're like, mm. oh, okay. Maybe, you know, maybe there's something wrong. And I always keep saying it is, it's a story uh, that repeats itself with every addict. It's, it's the hiding. I always said I was such a busy man, busy, 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 because in the morning I hit that I was hungover. Then during the day, I hit that I was actually craving for some alcohol. Then I hit that I was buying the alcohol. I hit the alcohol. I hit that I was drinking the alcohol. Mm -hmm. Then I hit that I was drunk. And then typically at some stage, I passed out. Uh, and, and then the day started again. So the hiding is, is such a part and parcel of being an addict. And with the hiding comes the lying. Right. And yeah. the shame. And the shame, and that's the shame, right. Right. You wake up in the morning and your first thought is, oh, my God, what did, I, what did I do yesterday? And then it starts all over again. Exactly. So and that is again and again. So because of that, it is there is a very strong denial in many addicts, alcoholics, 95 percent of them who clearly drink dangerously and too much. Ninety five percent will try to convince you that there's absolutely nothing wrong with them. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a hallmark of the disease. It is actually part and parcel of addiction. You, your, your brain wants to come up with 10,000 reasons why it's absolutely normal that you drink about two bottles of vodka a day, or in this case, injecting a, a substance up your arm. Um, at some stage, there is no more hiding. But then at least at that stage, you're also no longer caring too much about, right. about what's Which going on all the more reason to do more, right? Exactly, exactly right. right. And that's what people, um, I know now, I, I work with lots and lots of families and, um, you know, people will inevitably in the beginning at least say, I can't believe they're doing this to me. Ah. They're not doing it to you. Yeah. They're, if they were doing it 
just to you, I'm mm. sure they would stop. <laughs> you know, anybody. But unfortunately, mm. this is this is um, the, you know this is their own internal struggle that's impacting you, and it does. I mean, they. I think the statistic is one uh, between one and five people are just com- their lives are completely turned upside down by another person's addiction. So, I mean, that's a lot of people. Mm. And like you said, there's much more than that that are affected because, and much more than we're even talking about because we're not talking about the economic effect and Mm. all the other impacts of of addiction on society. But if we're just talking about that, that, you know, close familiar relationships, Mm. one one to five there. And that was definitely true in my case because it was me, it was her father, it was her father's family. It Mm. was... um, her brother, her two brothers and sister. It was the people that they were, that loved them. I mean, so this impacts everybody and it truly is a family disease. Only mm. the only problem with this is we are not treating the whole family. We only treat one person oh. and we do that poorly. Was there never a truer word spoken? Um, and that is so important that there are people out there like you who are spelling that out. Now, out of interest, you were highlighting the, the issue of addiction in your family and the strong traits of the alcohol in your family. What was the response of your family when the news broke? Were they supportive? Or what was actually, how did people react? Well, by the time this happened, most of my family were gone. So, I mean, I'm, when, I, when I say there was a lot of addiction in the family, I mean, there was a, there was a lot of addiction. So nobody lasted long enough to- I see, um, I see. Yeah. Yep, um, that sounds about right. Were other people that you knew who were enjoying either drugs or alcohol, how did they respond? How did other addicts, respond how what what but were there any oh my god was was there anyone out there who actually came to you gave you a hug i guess that is the question i'm asking no i think i i found new people to give me a hug Mm. i mean there was maybe one or two people that i had been close to but there were more people that i had um like you know we all have or most of us have uh friends that we grew up with Mm. and i had uh you know maybe four or five people that I had known mm. forever. Sure. And um, two of them were were still there, but I just didn't, you know, you got, you didn't know what to talk about. It was still uncomfortable and odd. And I had one good friend that always, you know, was always there to listen, but other people stepped away. Mm. They really did because it's just too much. I was fortunately in therapy always, I'm always in therapy, but um, you don't grow up the way I grew up and not be in therapy. <laughs> She's, I've been a permanent retainer. So, um, but I was, I was in therapy, but I used to say, thank God for her because I had somebody to talk to, but also I was always afraid that I was going to show up one day and she would have moved and not told me where she was going because I came with one horrific story after another. And a lot of our people that are therapists and stuff, they don't know what to do about addiction. There's a real shortage anyhow in the United States with of, of good clinicians that understand uh, that understand addiction. Because we have a lot of people out there that tell families, yeah. you gotta cut them off. You gotta cut them off, tell them to come back in three months. Yeah. And in three months when they're sober, they can come back to the family. 
And that makes me want to just rip all my hair out of my head because what other disease would you tell people come back in three months when you're well mm-hmm. and, and expect that to be helpful? You know what I mean? Why don't we just say I'm incredibly selfish and I'm going to think of my needs first. And I, if you live, you live. And if you don't, you don't. I mean, that's the equivalent in my mind to that. We have to draw boundaries. We have to, you know, take care of ourselves, but we don't cut people off that we love because they're sick. And um, so that makes me really angry in case you can't tell. (laughs) (laughs) You're hiding it so well. (laughs) I know, I do that. (laughs) See, now now talk about that Band-Aid being ripped off. Once I started talking and once I started not caring what anybody thought, all kinds of stuff comes out of me now. And that's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. Uh, Because that is what we need to do. We need to rip that Band-Aid off. Let's stop hiding behind a picket fence. Let's stop hiding behind this perfect social media uh, persona that we want to portray. Bullshit. Absolute bullshit. No. Well, no, yeah, no, no, it's no, all no. very it's all very fake and really hurtful too. And Indeed. it's not it's definitely not helping anybody for sure. No. Keeping, you know, pretending like everything is okay no. and going through these things alone. People need education they need support and they need self to need to learn self-care in order to get through this and be able to support someone who who needs that support mm-hmm. i mean you can you can have lots of um your own personal boundaries so that you don't get sucked into it but you can, there's you don't have to cut off love from mm-hmm. someone who's not well mm-hmm. so true so true and i think it is let's be honest here though there are people who deal with their own demons and the moment they realize that you are uh, in trouble, it gets too close to them and it is too much for them. Mm-hmm. They're not yet ready to face their own demons. So to a certain degree, we need to accept that and we need to give them the right to step away. And that's okay. It's just... You often think, but hang on, this person, we were so close. And where are they now? They're running for the hills. And right. that's the, it's a hurtful sensation. It's, 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 hmm. So for well, me. You, you find out who your friends are, right? You find out who you can count on, unfortunately. I'm sorry. <laughs> you, took the words, you took the words exactly <laughs> out of my mouth. <laughs> and I love it. I love it because that's exactly uh, true. It is, I ha- People who came out of the woodworks to actually support me, there were few and far in between uh, when I went into rehab. And I I will never forget, uh, after two, three weeks, there, someone was announced to me, there was a visitor out there for you. And I looked out there and it was one of my anesthetic technicians who, so we work in, in close-knit sort of duos, basically in theater. And here he had uh, traveled up three hours um to see me and just spend 20 minutes with me and just be there for me because he has had his own strong journey through addiction and came out clean the other end but he here was and this was such a beautiful message that he sent by just being there for 20 minutes and i'm buggering off again uh it was absolutely gorgeous whilst many of my other so-called friends never saw them never heard of them not one positive note not it was all this it was it was you know when you sort of when in the film suddenly the tumbleweed rolls through the your casserole on the empty table yeah yeah exactly 
Exactly. And people say, you know, oh, well, I didn't know what to say. I didn't mm. know what to do. So it's like, you know what? That's about you. Compare that to how how desperate and how awful a situation I was going through that you knew I was going through, mm. and you're uncomfortable in this. I'm mm. sorry, you lose. <laughs> you lose. <laughs> this this is a bigger problem, you know. So pull put on your big girl pants, your big boy pants, exactly. and and pick up exactly. the phone or yeah. do something. You know, just all you have to do is say, "I'm thinking of you." You don't have to have an answer. No one's expecting one from you. Mm. That's all you need to do is say, mm. I'm here and I'm thinking of you. I tell people that, all, I mean, in doing what I do, we lose people all the time. I don't have an answer to that, but I certainly pick up the phone. I'm thinking of you. I just want you to know that I'm sending love. That's it. Steal it. If you don't know what to say, take it. It works. <laughs> Indeed, right. Indeed, right. And I've come to do that uh, because sometimes I'm not sometimes, uh, most of the time, you don't really want to give answers. And I'm certainly neither a therapist nor a counselor nor anything like that. I don't want to be because I've got my own journey, but I see myself as a, maybe as a beacon, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a voice who says, Hey, look guys, I got my shit together and this is how I did it. And maybe there are some lessons for you. And I speak to other people who've gone through hell and kept going and here, these are their lessons. So that's, that's, that's what I do. But at the same token, it is by, it is such a difficult, difficult position to be in, but it's not a position where you can be quiet. I think if it, the silence is the worst thing, in addiction and it doesn't matter if it is for the addict or for the family or for the people around that nucleus of mm -hmm. uh, people silence is the worst talk about it make sense of it learn from it make just bring it out there into the open and then suddenly you realize you said it earlier that that uh, what your daughter wrote to the newspaper that sometimes Addicts do bad things, but it doesn't mean to say that they are bad people. And that is such a beautiful thing. Fight the addiction. Don't fight the addict. Mm -hmm. Or in this case, the mother of the addict. Okay. Yeah. So, and there are not enough hacks in this world. God, there are people. Hack someone. And well, I know it's hard <laughs> with bloody COVID over there. God. <laughs> that was, I know. It's, it's just, you know, how can you send love? And sometimes as a hug is such an important bit that, that yeah. you know, yeah. you don't need to say and a you, word. There's always, I mean, you can say very little and still let somebody know that you're there for them. And that doesn't, Correct. it doesn't take anything. It's um, was very disappointing to see how few people um, reached out, really disappointing. Mm. So um, what I did is I created it, you know, I, um, it started with, maybe 40 or 50 people in Massachusetts that I had met at meet at a meeting. And I found the meetings to be lacking in that, you know, we had Al-Anon and Naranon, which I'm sure are there too. We have, we had a couple of other um, meetings for families that uh, I felt like they would bring somebody in who would tell their story and how they got well, or they would, um, they would, it would just be people going around the circle telling one sad story after another. And I just didn't feel like that that was helpful to me. I wanted information. So I was, you know, I'm, I'm a teacher, I'm a counselor. I have 
all these, all my life, I went to school and researched things. So I did the same thing. But I now I would was finding all this information. I was making contacts with people, and I really, I mean, some of it was helpful for her, and some of it wasn't because I wasn't the right person to be helping her. I needed, you know what I mean? Because it was, I was absolutely out of my mind because of everything that was going on. So definitely, you know, the same there. Well, I'll come back to that. But so I'm going through all this, but I feel like I know all this stuff now and, and I'm connecting with other people. So we created a Facebook group. I created a Facebook group and it was called um, Magnolia Addiction Support. I started a nonprofit. It was called Magnolia New Beginnings. And I said, I'm going to address the gaps and the gaps that I see here was that people that were trying to get into treatment didn't know how to get in. And they once they got in, they didn't know how to make sure they got as much treatment as possible. And then they had no place to go after treatment sometimes because some people had lost their families or you know, they never had them to begin with. So that was one gap. The other gap was for families. They were going to these meetings and there was always the loudest voice in the room telling everybody you got to cut them off. You got to, you know, set them, set them loose, tell them not to come back until they're sober. And I looking at research, I'm thinking that's not really a good idea. That mm. doesn't typically work. And even when it does, it causes resentments. And mm. what is, what if that's the last thing that you ever say to somebody? Mm. Right. Mm. And mm. I was seeing that happen. So now I also have met, met people and I know people that have lost children. And when you talk to a mom who's lost a child, they will tell you, don't do that. Make sure you let them know they're loved that, you know, mm. so, and, and not cut off, but you're there for them when they're ready and, and mm. set boundaries, but you don't cut your loved ones off. So mm. I was like, this is this, we all have to somehow be mm. together. And now these support groups and these Facebook pages have grown to almost 30,000 people across wow. the country. We have people all over the, all over. So it's not just limited to the United States. Um, they're free. We have Zoom meetings at night on the uh, family meetings. Mm. And my family meetings, I do a training to teach people how to do these, but they start with, with um, education. There's an educational module, 26 of them so that you can use it and then flip it and do it again. Then there's the support meeting where people are um, supporting each other in an educated way. So no one, it's it's facilitated by someone who's done the training so that people aren't saying things that aren't true. Because mm. we all know, especially after our last election here in the United States, <laughs> that you can say anything you want, but it doesn't necessarily need to be true. That's not allowed in these meetings. So, and then the end is some kind of, is some kind of self-care. So we, last week uh, during our meeting, I taught people tapping, EFT tapping. Mm. We do uh, lots of meditation. We do things that actually work that people need. So that's what, that's what our meetings look like on Zoom. So we have all of this going on. Plus there's uh, groups now with, um, oh God, 10, 12,000 people in recovery mm. in uh, as part of it. So I created the the group of people that I needed for support. And thank mm. God, you know, life has been good to me that I'm now able mm. to facilitate these instead of trying to grasp on. But we need to surround ourselves with people that are educated and are mm. giving us information that actually makes sense instead of these uh, emotion-based, fear-based things that people say and, and carry out. And then it turns out to not be the answer. Indeed. Well, so true. So true.
When you went to your first meetings, was that scary? Was that frustrating? Was it, how did you leave the meeting when you sort of think about the first half a dozen? I mean, I didn't, to be honest with you, I started to go, when I started to tour around with my book, I went to these meetings and I spoke about the book, mm. but I probably only went to maybe, mm. I went, so I went to lots of meetings then, but I probably went mm. to less than 10 meetings because mm. I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to listen to that. I would go to a meeting when they had a speaker. Mm. So they would have mm. John Kelly from the Mass General Hospital from the Recovery Research Institute talking about the physiology of addiction. That one I would go to mm. because I, I wanted information. So if they had somebody that was sharing some kind of information, mm. but they were few and far between. Mm. And um, I, I wanted information. So I started educating myself. I've done the training Beautiful. to be a, a licensed alcohol and drug counselor. I've done every training known to mankind, I think, on addiction. And now I speak at the conferences. But that's yeah. what I started to do is I started mm. to make, um, because that was something I can control. And we know that the, you don't, you can't control somebody else. Um, you can't make them stop drinking or doing drugs. You can't do any of that. What you can do is you can educate yourself and, and you can learn how to be a loving support and understand here's the thing, not everybody will stop doing what they're doing. Some mm. people don't get well, they just don't. So we have to decide whether we still want mm. that person in our lives to love mm. when we can, when, when it's safe to do so for us. Mm. But um, cutting somebody off when they may not get well is not the answer. It's so true. Yes, so true. There is uh, so much to be said about that. I found it when I when I went for rehab, I went to a addiction hospital, which was superb. And there was a lot of education there. There was a lot of exploring there, guided exploring of all the mess that was my head. And I, with hindsight, I was so blessed to be in this top of the top program, so to speak, uh, at that time. Thereafter, after discharge, after those four weeks, uh, part of my contract with my treatment team was that I continued to go to meetings. And I found that the hardest. I went to, first of all, to an outpatient uh, group. And it was bizarre because I had come from such a high level uh, of, of care that this outpatient program wasn't anywhere close to that. And at times I felt, come on, I'm six weeks into rehab now and I could run this meeting probably better than the, the person who did it. So I was, hey, come on. Um, and that was bizarre. I then went to uh, evening AA meetings and they say 90 meetings in 90 days. Yeah, I tried to be a good boy, but hell, after half a dozen meetings, uh, half a, yeah, half a dozen, five, six meetings, I, every single meeting was the same. I wanted to go out and drink something. There was, <laughs> honestly, uh, I wanted to get pissed because, oh God, it's just another sub story. And it was often enough from, from people who were white knuckling it. Um, mm -hmm. I'm 25 years sober, but if I don't turn up in a meeting, I will be in the pub because all that happened to me. And this person, as you said, the loudest voice who was then often enough talking, talking, talking. And 
you think, oh, for Christ's sake, you did never go beyond step one, two, three in the in the in the twelve step program. You actually didn't didn't deal with the shit in your life. Right. So that was interesting. So. Uh, and I heard, unfortunately, similar responses for people who went to Al-Anon meetings or uh, Al-Anon meetings. It can be the, 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 what you get out of going to a meeting can be very dependent upon where you go and, and, and yes. which meetings yeah. you touch upon. So therefore, it is, it is, I think that's, that's a word of warning that we need to give out there. But equally, I want to turn that into a word of hope. Because, guys, if you have been to a meeting that didn't gel with you well that was then um you have now especially after covid you have got an explosion of online meetings so you don't even have to travel two hours somewhere you can actually just log in somewhere and chances are somewhere right now as we speak there are meetings they might be in denmark or they might be god knows where um but today they there will be english-speaking meetings if you're in an english-speaking world um and they might be exactly what you need it's just a matter of of actually finding that support group because the silence as i mentioned earlier silence is the worst thing and don't 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 let the silence come and then let the the, the dark voices in your head give you good ideas or rubbish no it is it's so hard so hard so guys go out there there is help and uh, is your magnolia still running under the same name yeah the the website is magnolianewbeginnings.org and it lists all the um all the facebook groups and um it, they, you know, if somebody was out of the United mm. States, they could join the main group because we have mm. people that are, you know, in Canada and Ireland and a whole bunch of different places mm. um, that are in that group. It's it's all the same disease, mm. you know, even if it's a different drug, it's all the same disease. Mm. Um, and they're all parents, too. So and then we have we also have recovery groups too, two recovery groups that um, people can join. But um, it's um, magnoliarecoveryresources.com is the Zoom groups on Thursdays and Sundays right now, but they're exp we're expanding. And we, it's should, so we should get some in New Zealand. We should put one together in New Zealand. <laughs> I think that's a damn good idea. And it's you a get very... me over there too. <laughs> I promise I'll, I'll take a trip home. I promise I'll go home. I'm yeah, right. Yeah, right. That's what you say. <laughs> no, I that's see what I hear. you coming. No, 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 no. <laughs> the, the problem is, it is there's so many uh, of of immigrants here in New Zealand, and it's always the same story. How did you end up in New Zealand? Oh, well, I came for a visit, and then I never left. <laughs> Twenty-seven years later, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong. We need people like you. So please, Maureen Kavanagh. Yes, you are a welcome guest. Any, any time. Uh, out here, no doubt about that. Maureen, it is there is so much uh, good things that have come out of your journey, and to see you now so passionate as an advocate for for families who find themselves going through this hell of addiction is so beautiful. I mean, this was not something that was out there. And I think if there was one positive thing out of, out of COVID, it is this increased sensation that whilst you're isolated, 
in your home. At the same token, you're breaking down barriers and your willingness to go onto the internet to find the right bunch of people that actually truly, truly gels with you is this this hurdle is getting easier and easier to overcome. And yeah, for I that, agree. I'm so grateful. So unfortunately, it's made addiction and, and overdose has has risen dramatically in the United States. Um, we expect that we'll lose probably last year, we'll have lost an, an additional 10,000 um, people, um, up to about 82,000 people we've lost from, to, just to overdose. So that's not alcohol. That's not, you know, all the, the medical impacts and the, uh, from, from years of using or anything like that's just overdose. Absolutely. And every one of those people are so, it's somebody's child. Mm. And I think that is so important. But Maureen and I will, will discuss it in the follow-up interview that will be broadcast in due course. So, uh, guys, look down there into the description of, of the this podcast and this YouTube video because uh, we have got all the, the links to Maureen's work there, including a link to the book. Um, so if you if you get all interested and in, and hey you want to you want to do learn more, just go down there. And whilst you're down there, press the subscribe button. Okay, subscribe is good, and leave a comment on 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 the the video or or the, the podcast, and actually say, hey, yeah, I I, I know, uh, and and just tell us what you think, because let's let's go out there. Let's with every little action that you take, leaving a simple comment, you actually take action. You're no longer powerless. You have taken action to listen to us here today that is powerful, that is, you are doing, you're doing so much already. And keep building this momentum. And you are not alone. Find the tribe that you belong to. Find those people that infuse you. Find those people that, that love you. And it doesn't matter which color their skin, which color, which, which place on this earth they are. There is this family out there. And that's the amazing thing. You're not alone going through your journey. And that's so important. There's hope out there. Maureen and her family, her daughter are, are such a beautiful example. So guys, don't give up. Do not give up. Do do take that next little step in looking after yourself. And I love it to just say someone, hey, I'm there for you. This little sentence in a text, in a message, in a right. phone call is so important, isn't it? It's so simple. Mm. Maureen, you are an absolute gorgeous woman. Thank you so much for having come onto my show. It was, uh, you, you humble me and I'm so, so grateful for, for you being here with us. Thank you very much. No trouble. And you guys out there, look after yourself. Bye.